In today's episode, our guests Ben Hayes and Isha Kandelwal talk with Wolfgang Kalik about the current global pushback against civic spaces. Human Rights in Times of Crises, ECCHR's talk series on resistance and concrete utopias. With our talks, we want to create the necessary platform for actors from all over the world to discuss and advance global human rights struggles. Human rights are a concrete utopia worth defending, but how to defend them needs to be constantly reinvented. As we find ourselves in a time of profound global transitions, human rights actors need to refer to prevailing inequalities and the underpinning social questions. We initiated an event series that is now available as a podcast to rethink the struggle for and around human rights. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are now. And welcome to um, part five of um, ECCHR series, talking series, Concrete Utopias in Times of Crisis. Yeah, as everybody can observe these days, we are living in multiple crises. We have already uh, lighted up some aspects of this crisis, the health crisis, uh, the climate crisis. And we're going to have two more discussions about um, other aspects, the colonial, post-colonial, racial discrimination aspect. But we're also trying to uh, speak about resistance. We're speaking about counter strategies. And we spoke about concrete utopias, the concrete utopia of, of human rights in, in particular. So today's session is dedicated to rethinking shrinking spaces in times of crisis. We have, I have to hear Isha Kandelwal, lawyer from India, who's currently a fellow here in, in Germany with us, with ECCHR. And to my left, Ben Hayes from the UK, from the uh, law firm AWO, and formerly consultant of uh, uh, ECCHR, of ICRC, and of the Transnational Institute. And in that capacity, he wrote a number of um, yeah, very thoughtful uh, studies on shrinking spaces. Uh, one in particular, criminalizing solidarity about the criminalization of all those who are in solidarity with migrants, who help migrants to live, to survive in Europe and who are criminalized for that. So it's a very current issue we're talking to. But Ben, uh, my first question to you is, um, are we using the right terms? Is civic spaces the right word to frame um, the, the problem? Are we really in times of crisis? And are civic spaces really shrinking or is it just a hype and the situation is not much worse or better than 10 or 20 years ago? Okay, um, hi everyone and thanks Wolfgang. Um, Maybe I'll start with with the civic space piece. When we're talking about civic space, we're really talking about the environment in which people can organize, assemble, associate, um, and essentially the, the space for political activism. When we talk about shrinking civic space, we're really talking about, um, in some ways, the kind of, you know, what was crudely referred to as, as the repression of, of that political activism. Um, but broadly, it's about the power of ordinary people to come together, organize, demonstrate, protest, agitate, um, rights which are, are guaranteed to them under the international legal order. So, you know, is, is civic space shrinking? As you said, I, I've done a lot of research in this area over the years. I think, you know, um, there's no doubt about that and we can come on to the forms that takes. Is the word shrinking the right space? I think there are problems with the concept around, you know, this, this idea of space as if it's somehow permanent given, um, I think, of, of, of course, the spaces where, where political struggle takes place have, have always been and will always be contested. But I think, you know, broadly, um, a helpful metaphor that, that, that lets us um, understand and capture 
the environment in which political activism is taking place. Um, the last part of your question, I think, is the easiest one. You know, are we living in times of crisis? Um, you know, turn on your TVs. I'm being flippant, but I think, you know, the world has sort of lurched from one crisis to the other, probably since the financial crisis that started a bit over a decade ago. Um, and I, I think this matters because when governments are in crisis mode, as we've all seen, um, extraordinary things are possible. It changes the quality of government, the quality of our democracy. And I think that is intimately linked um, to, to the way civic space is being shaped and framed um, today. So the original focus, um, especially of human rights organization, but also of um, official institutions who were in support was on individual human rights defenders. You have been criticizing that and you said we have to focus more on organizations which are affected by state repression. We have to look at structures and at struggles because otherwise uh, the whole problem gets depoliticized and uh, we're, we're not seeing the causes for repression. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think, um, look, on the one hand, like by talking about civic space, by talking about human rights defenders, we've been able to bring people into the conversation who aren't necessarily comfortable talking about political activism, struggles, so, you know, big philanthropy, governments. Um, in respect to the term, you know, human rights defenders, I think there are, you know, it's, it's much needed and the focus on human rights defenders is important because it allows um, international actors like ECCHR, others, um, frontline defenders, you know, the European Union who are, who are active in this space and need to provide um, rapid support to individuals and activists under threat. I think the, the other side of that is, is the sort of level of ab abstraction that's involved when we just talk about human rights defenders. We focus on the individual, you know, we see their pictures, we know their names, but we, we don't talk about the struggles they're involved in. We don't talk about the, the wider groups of people, the organizations um, behind them. And I, I think the, the, the other thing we said um, in the research we did was, you know, it can also let entities that are complicit in, in the repression of human rights defenders off the hook, right? It's very easy for our governments to say, we support human rights defenders all over the world. Look at the funding, look at the, the support we give. And that, that's true to a point, but it, it, um, it takes away the focus on the sort of, you know, the complicity potentially of those states, the global system. Um, so it's slightly problematic. Yeah, but it's still difficult, I mean, uh, to, to find the right terms because um, As you're right, um, human rights defenders is so abstract and so we would find also actors from the political right now claiming their rights. For example, in Germany, you know, those who deny uh, COVID, the existence of COVID and, uh, and the consequences um, also would claim the right to protest and the right to demonstrate and they would even call them, you know, human rights uh, defenders. Um, but what is the right term? I mean, uh, movements is also a very vague term. What would you propose? Oh, look, I, I, I wish I had better concepts. And, you know, we've been discussing this earlier today and, and you know, discussing the problems inherent with this idea of civic space, um, the potential problems with human rights defenders. I'm, I'm not really proposing that we do away with these terms and come up with alternatives. I think, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves in the, in the con context of sh shrinking space, you know, wh whose space is shrinking and why? Because it's quite clear, as you say, Not everyone's space is shrinking and there, there are a whole bunch of other actors um, who are in places where um, decisions are made. I, I, and, you know, I would say that I think the focus on human rights is extremely important at a time when, um, you know, the, the, the right is essentially trying to delegitimize human rights. You know, we're all part of this liberal elite. Human rights don't serve the greater good. They just serve you know, refugees, asylum seekers. Um, and I think the, the, there's a concerted pushback against human rights globally, but also against those um, engaged in promoting them. And, and I'm certainly not saying um, we, we should do away with the term. Yeah, I think it's a very important point because while uh, parts of the leftist and progressive forces, even in our countries, in Western European countries or in North America, are criticizing the vagueness and emptiness of, of some, some of the human rights discourses, But it's um, for other parts of the world, it's, it's, a, it's a protection. It's a very important label. And when I talk about other parts of the world, I'm referring to those countries where we see um, most of uh, the, the, 
where we observe really shrinking spaces in, in concrete, which means uh, organizations are prohibited, uh, NGOs have to be registers, have to report, um, human rights actors, activists, protesters um, get arrested, get criminalized, sometimes uh, tortured, put into prison. And um, a part of, of um, Egypt, Ethiopia and Russia, one country is named very often and that is India, which is in a way surprising for a Western audience because uh, many people are, and even journalists are talking uh, of India as the uh, largest democracy in the world that might not really fit with uh, your um, experience, Isha. So um, you heard Ben saying that um, there are certain indicators um, uh, really indicating that civic spaces are shrinking. So what are your observations in India, and especially under the government of, of Modi? Um, what has changed? Uh, has it become worse? Yeah, I think saying that the space is shrinking in India is understatement. Uh, in terms of what we are looking at there, like their complete shutdown of spaces, like we are losing battlegrounds everywhere. Not to say that things weren't were really great previously before Modi, but I think we are seeing a peculiar behavior, a more violent and aggressive shutdown and clampdown on any kind of dissent against this particular particular majoritarian right-wing regressive Hindu nationalist ideology that the government is trying to push through and anybody who speak against it gets criminalized or uh, is killed or arrested, anything. And I think what we are seeing is more peculiar because of the way it is happening. Uh, the the counter-terrorism law, which was of course used previously also, is being used far more broadly against everyone, be it student activists, lawyers, academicians. You're seeing it against like farmers' protests. Like it's not even like a certain kind of work which is under threat, which we have also seen by the recent Foreign Contribution Regulation Act that the entire regulating the social work uh, what And I'm saying social work because it actually impacts everything, even not very much a political kind of work. So to explain a little bit, the act means that uh, those NGOs and uh, entities which receive foreign support, development aid or any other funding um, are uh, getting banned of this. Yeah, because the regulations are so stringent that people are not able to receive money. Uh, people cannot... I mean, it's difficult to follow those regulations and it impacts more grassroots work because the grassroots organizations can't get now direct funding from the larger organizations. The other thing that I want to highlight is the role of technology that we have not seen before, which is, it's not just surveillance, but also use of technology for criminalization, where we have seen governments like the Pegasus revelation that happened recently, with most of, with so many of the activists who are including the ones that are in jail have been on the list of the Pegasus surveillance. But we have also seen that the government has put in so much resources to actually fabricate evidence and plant remotely in the devices. And I think that use of technology and the social media to create an atmosphere and a propaganda, which is a new field that we don't know how to fight right now. I mean, you can fight in courts, but something with the state's resources and power, how do you fight this technology battle or a social media battle that is a new area which all of us are kind of grappling with and the state has all the resources to use uh, against any dissent that comes out in this country right now. Is it a larger trend, Ben? Uh, you know, the, the technological um, development, the tools um, developed by, by the NSO industrial complex uh, and distributed uh, in, in many parts of the world. I think that's another easy one to answer. You know, if you look at the security and surveillance industry now, it is huge, it generates vast, vast revenues annually, hundreds of billions of dollars. This, essentially, this industry is involved in providing governments of any stripe, democratic, repressive, um, with tools of surveillance, technological control. 
um, that were kind of, you know, unimaginable even sort of 15, 20 years ago. And, and I think if you look at the sort of, the, there's, there's different degrees of this, but if you look at, say, um, you know, China, and I don't want to jump on the, you know, beating China from here in Europe bandwagon, but if you look at um, the advance of technology, its use for, for social control, um, it, it's allowing, I think, the, the political control from distance at scale that was unimaginable before the revolution in information and communications technology. I mean, you just could not um, manage whatever dissent, struggles for self-determination, wh whatever we're talking about. You could not do that in that way um, just a couple of decades ago. And now, you know, there's a, there's a whole um, business, there's a big shop window, and um, the governments and companies that are sort of most engaged in this, you know, we, we, we can also talk about Israel, the US, the big arms exporters from here in Europe. They all have um, significant uh, security and surveillance portfolios. And absolutely, it is, it is contributing to this wider phenomenon we're talking about. How does it affect uh, activists, protesters, NGO in concrete? So can you give us some example? Like technology? Yes, yes. Um, Because you're, you're, you're saying that this has reached a, a new level. I can give an example of one case where we have seen the extreme use of technology, which is the Bhima Koregaon case, where 16 activists, including lawyers, academicians, student activists, uh, cultural activists, were all in this one case using this draconian anti-terror law against them, them accused of assassinating the prime minister. And in that, the entire case is based on these few documents that they claim they seized from their devices, which now has been concretely proved that it was planted remotely months before their arrest. Uh, and most of them and their family members and their lawyers have been found on the Pegasus list of surveillance much before their arrest. And this is only one example. But it's so targeted and it's so much resources that the government has put in. And most of these people are people who are trade unionists, who are organizers, who have been speaking against this government, especially the corporate and state nexus when it comes to land grab and mining and all, especially against those issues. These are the people who have been speaking for decades. And this is what it has resulted in. And that's what the technology did. Otherwise, there would have been no proof. And how do you fight that? Like, how do you prove something like this is wrong or right in a court of law also? And that's been a struggle for all of us, yeah. So um, I think uh, Isha mentions a very important fact that there are, um, and, and it's also something you refer to, there are some, let's say, whose spaces are affected how was your question and why? And so uh, she names some of those um, who are mainly targeted. Um, those who are protesting or are active against land grabbing, uh, against environmental pollution, against certain infrastructural projects. Is that a larger trend? I think so. And I mean, it's, it's, it's quite hard to make sort of um, generalizations because, you know, this, this, these trends are manifesting themselves in very different ways. Um, obviously, the situation here in Europe is very different to the situation um, in India and, and in other parts of the world um, where we're seeing rising and, and similar levels of repression. I think, um, you know, the, I suppose the, there's a couple of things at play here. The first is sort of we're in this time of, of intersectional crisis, you know, um, that's clear to see. There's a lot of disillusionment with the status quo, the international economic system, democracy itself. Um, and I think, you know, broadly what we see in this trend is that those who most threaten the status quo and the powerful interests that have the most to lose from, you know, renewed um, democratization, a new social contract, um, they, they are bearing the brunt of this. I think, you know, Some of it is deliberate and some of it is maybe less sort of well thought out, right? And I think, you know, part of the things that governments are trying to do is really just keep a lid on things. You know, they too know that like, you know, we're in this, we're in this age of intersectional crisis. The world is full of disillusioned people. Protests could break out here, there and anywhere at any time. There's, a, there's an Oxford academic called Paul Rogers who uses the term lidism. And he says, all they're really trying to do you know, is keep a lid on things. And it, it's, it's that sort of foresighting and 
Um, and really, you know, la- lack of alternatives on the part of our governments that are leading them to make these massive investments in structures that are then used in much more overtly political ways. Um, you, you know, you mentioned earlier um, the work we did around, you know, criminalizing migrant solidarity. You know, I, I think um, a lot of people wouldn't see these people as threats to the status quo. You know, we're talking about church groups. We're talking about local communities just helping people arriving in boats out of the water, giving them food, shelter, driving them to reception centers. Why, why are they being criminalized? What threat do they pose to any? I think, I think it's quite clear that, you know, if your policy is predicated on, you know, delegitimizing and denying the, the right of access you know, to your territory for, for migrants and refugees. What follows from that is, is the criminalization of those who go against that and try to help them. Other areas we could talk about, you know, investigative journalism, anti-corruption campaigners, climate justice campaigners, you know, and, and you know, again, a difference between, you know, sort of, I guess, big professional NGOs who are sort of, you know, attending climate conferences and trying to have dialogues with governments and people who are quite understandably and perfectly rightly, in my view, saying, look, actually, you know, the climate crisis deserves far more urgent and direct action than that. And, and you know, we're, we're also seeing the full force of the state come, come down on those persons. You know, I remember the, the Paris climate conference, you know, we saw, you know, armed counterterrorism police, you know, raise, raiding squats inhabited by um, just, just protest organizations. You know, just protesters. You know, this 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 is this is Europe in in 2015. Yeah, it was shortly after the uh, the attacks, the terrorist attacks in in Nizza. Possibly before, but even then, it wasn't a counterterrorism operation. This is the point. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you put into question the use of broader terms. Um, you are warning a little bit, you know, don't try to, uh, to put all under a certain framework. But don't you think that um, using this term shrinking civic spaces allows actors from countries like India to connect to, to broader trends? And it's in fact a little bit helpful, and I want to ask you as well, isn't it helpful to, to, to point to this larger trend because um, it also makes clear that your government cannot argue that, you know, this is a, a specialty of, this is a special situation in our country and you don't understand the development in my country and so uh, shut up. Whereas when we frame it in a, in a, in, on a, in a broader scale, um, um, it's in fact helpful and it connects also affected communities and actors. And I saw it with the... Um, Again, with the Pegasus project, the NSO, the, the, the security, so-called security company, which sells the, the Pegasus tool to many different countries and region, um, and uh, forensic architecture with Amnesty International and Citizen Lab tried to visualize um, the, the development. And it was quite impressive to see on how many uh, different places in, in the world this particular spy tool has been used and in, in uh, how many how many how many uh, groups and individuals have been targeted with obviously you need then to dive into the details and to understand the concrete situation and obviously Mexico is not India and uh, nobody in in Spain or wherever this tool is used has been treated like Khashoggi, who was also uh, a victim of, of this tool. But I, I think it, it connects struggles and parts of the world. And I, I, your warning is right, but uh, isn't it also, um, is, isn't it helpful to, to connect these different struggles and to try to, to, to frame it in broader terms? Yeah, look, so I'll, I'll try to take those, those um, questions in turn. You know, it goes back to what I said before, right? We've got to ask ourselves whose space is shrinking and why, and what are the techniques that are being used to, to whatever, to, to clamp down on activists, uh, restrict the right to protest, um, if, you know, adversely impact the capacity of NGOs to organize, um, you know, clamp down on opposition politicians, whatever it may be. A- absolutely, um, we've got to talk about the sort of the techniques and, and those who are, um, who are being affected by that. I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not 
a huge fan of the concept of, of civic space or shrinking civic space. It's, it's just convenient shorthand for, for talking about a much more um, complex set of dynamics. And I think, you know, for, for those people who, who have pushed this concept, um, it has been quite helpful in giving people a focal point on an issue that was not an issue for many people before big philanthropy, um, you know, democratic governments. And, and you know, we, we, we're starting to see conversations like this, right, about shrinking space because people have been, been using the concept. Um, go, going against that, I think, um, you know, one of the things you said is, is very important. And, you know, part of this, in, inherent in this, is something of a crisis of solidarity, right, where, you know, we, we are seeing people subject to the same kinds of, of, you know, political techniques, repressive measures, um, all, all, all at the sharp end of, of, of the same tools and techniques. Um, but equally, you know, we, we're seeing this sort of concerted effort to delegitimize um, some of those struggles. And I, I think, um, you know, it, I keep going back to this idea of whose space is shrinking and why, but, you know, we, we can look at... Um, at certain areas where particular struggles have been completely de delegitimized to, to the point that, you know, people have started um, not even engaging them, you know, human rights funders, government funders have, have withdrawn funding from particular groups and areas. Um, so, yeah, you know, not, not especially um, um, enamored with the term civic space. Um, I, th I think it does mark, mask much bigger crises and much more important conversations, but it is helpful as a, as a sort of, as a, as a, as a term that, that brings people together to have these kinds of conversations. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, I think kind of the same in a way that, I mean, whose spaces are shrinking, right? Like civic spaces for certain communities, there was never a space. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example? For example, Muslims or Dalits or mm. Adivasis in India, like in the indigenous people, at least for them, I can say that there was never a space. I mean, they have been fighting on the streets and have faced the repercussion by every government irrespective. I think what that term shows is that it has gone beyond that. For like when you say that in India, and I think that, and also it's, I think it helps articulate, as you said, like as a larger issue to connect globally to a language that is more accepted. I would say that people in India would use it to show that things have gone beyond bad now, right? Like when you say that the space is shrinking to even now for a person sitting in a city also to speak, right? So it is a certain that people who were not touched as such before by the government and who had the space to speak, that space is going away. Uh, so it's only that community uh, but again, like spaces for most people have not existed even before the crisis that we are in right now. So Ben, you pointed um, to the to the causes of of this development, and you named already some trends, and we spoke about some of the trends. You said uh, securitization, so the security apparatus, the security laws. Uh, have been established. You uh, mentioned corporate power, especially the power of those corporations who sell security. And you also uh, point to anti-democratic and regressive actors in the field. So can you, can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I guess what, what we were trying to do was say, like, if you're concerned about shrinking space in the 2020s, um, and you want to understand, you know, where this trend has come from and, and where it's going. Um, you've really got to look at, like, what are the driving forces behind, you know, these manifestations on the ground and, and what affects them. So I'll, I'll take those in turn. Um, securitization is another weasel word, actually. I'm not massively fond of that, but it's a, it's a, it's a convenient way of, of talking about a, a, a constellation of forces. But look, here we are, um, 20 years since 9-11, um, we've gone from a situation in which, you know, only a handful of countries around the world had counterterrorism laws and, in, and, you know, deeply established national security infrastructures to a time where these things have become universal and ubiquitous. And, you know, the international community, the United Nations over the past two decades has said to states all around the world, it is your responsibility to combat terrorism. You must enact these kinds of terrorism laws. 
but they've left states free to define, well, who are the terrorists, right? And it's been something of a blank check, particularly for repressive regimes who, who get these, these laws on their statutes and use them for overtly political policing and political ends. And just, you know, a couple of figures that back that up. We talked about um, human rights defenders, I think 2019 frontline defenders who, who help human rights defenders around the world. They said almost 60% of the cases they deal with are related to the misuse of counterterrorism laws um, or national security laws. You know, same thing, UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights. Two thirds of the complaints she receives from around the world, again, based on the misuse and abuse um, of these laws. You know, we, we can also talk within this about the wider national security apparatus, the security industry. So that's, that's securitization. Let me, allow me a, a question sure, in, in between. Um, because, I mean, we're now having the 20th anniversary of 9-11-2001, the attacks in New York and in Washington, which were, didn't affect many countries in the world, mainly the US. And um, how did it come that uh, the US and also the Western European states allowed uh, more authoritarian states to use the label of, 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 of terrorism and, and, and counter-terrorism laws and measures to deal with their, uh, with their uh, opposition with protesters? Um, I, I mean, I think, I think there's, um, there's probably two pieces to this. You know, the first is, is after, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, you know, the President of the United States stood up and said to the world, you know, you're, e you're either with us um, or you're with the terrorists. And, you know, that began, you know, you will remember well yourself, you know, you and I were working on issues around um, the proposed EU framework of terrorism, EU framework um, decision on terrorism, which, which introduced binding terrorism legislation across the EU when only prior to that, you know, only five, five states had it. But it, it, it was essentially, you know, the way that counterterrorism was set up as the biggest global problem facing the world. That was the first piece. The second thing was we then saw international organizations, first the European Union, but also the United Nations say, well, you know, we're now not just in the business of human rights, we're also in the business of counterterrorism, and we must help states across the world, you know, many of whom, not many of whom, some of whom did have genuine problems um, with terrorism, but we must provide technical support, financial support, um, assistance of various kinds to, to help countries across the world enact these kinds of terrorism laws so they can deal with the, with, with the threat of terrorism. And as I said before, um, one of the biggest problems with this, there's no universally agreed definition of terrorism. Um, th there's no definition in many of the international institu in, in instruments um, particularly those, those adopted by the United Nations. So on the one hand, um, states yeah, have been... That's why we always say that terrorism is a political category and not a, not, uh, not, 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 not a legal category as we know. But, but I think, you know, going back to your question, which is how has how how sort of the Western democracies allowed repressive regimes to take advantage to these? I mean, it's partly this international architecture, you know, through which, you know, counterterrorism laws have just been copy-pasted spread around the world. You know, we talked about the foreign, foreign, Isha talked about the Foreign Contribution Regulations Act. You know, that was widely used as a model for other states around the world to introduce the same kind of, of um, foreign funding restrictions, licensing requirements on NGOs. Um, so in the same way, you know, we've had these, these counter-terrorism, countering violent extremism, counter-radicalization, countering the financing of terrorism. There are UN Security Council resolutions. There are conventions galore that all states are, are, are signing up to, but there's very little in there, apart from sort of lip service to human rights and constitutional protections, that actually prevents these laws being misused in practice. And I think that's really um, at the crux of this. And, you know, two decades on from 9-11, um, we really ought to be addressing this international architecture. You also wanted to explain a little bit why corporate power is as important in this context of shrinking spaces? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's, there's probably three or four things here, you know, the first of which we've, we've, we've touched upon, which is, you know, the sort of the security and surveillance industries. Um, I think just, you know, the, the, the second thing is really about the rising power of corporations and corporate impunity um, relative to both nation states, 
and you know individuals activists um so you know on the one hand and we, we could talk about you know latin america africa you know we've been talking particularly about people resisting big infrastructure projects resource extraction whatever it may be you know in in many cases um we have seen corporations um you know directly complicit in 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 manifest um human rights abuses in the way um that they've they've tried to counter these protests. Um, I think I think the second thing is really more about how you know co corporations have captured a seat at the decision making table. You know, so I, I'm you know if if we look back sort of 20 years ago, um, you know, post Cold War, you know, liberal democracy was about to spread all around the world. NGOs and civil society were seen as this natural partner of government development aid, service delivery, human rights. But sort of what, what's really happened over the last sort of 20 years is as, as corporations have got um, more and more powerful, you know, they've begun to occupy the spaces that, that, that civil society, for want of a better term, um, traditionally occupied. And, and, and when, um, now when governments want partners in policy or service delivery, it, it's not the nonprofit sector they're turning to, it's the corporate sector. Um, and so, you know, w w when we're talking about corporate power in, in the context of shrinking civic space, we're also talking about the power that these giant corporations wield over um, the way policies, decisions are made, both at a global level um, and, and nationally. And we can also talk about some companies um, which instrumentalize yeah, state agencies or employed even private so-called security forces to oppress protests. That's a very common issue in India. Yeah, I mean, we have seen, I mean, of course, it's difficult to have like documentary proof, but we have seen, especially in the area that I've heard, that all the extraction industries and the corporations, they're all protected by the state securities. Uh, you have the border security force protecting a mine and then like the MOUs, like the memorandum signed with the corporations have at that at one point have coincided with the time when the state, when there was also an armed vigilante group which was sponsored, which went around burning the villages to get it vacated. So we have seen that kind of nexus, which is more, you can, I mean, it's very clear and it's very explicit in the way how it operates on the land. Uh, and the state has completely protected corporate in every which way uh, and in keeping the protesters at bay also from any of these mining operations. So have, we have been talking about uh, emergency laws and in, in the context of 9-11-2001. Um, The current crisis, uh, COVID-19, is probably the first time where we have states of emergency uh, globally installed. Edward Snowden had said in another of, the, of our conferences, um, you know, our governments um, have the overarching, you know, attitude, never waste a crisis. And he also talked about um, a 9-11 kind of opportunity for social media. How would you assess the situation? What new developments happened in, in, in the recent one and a half years? Um, so I think, I mean, you know, this, this being the first um, genuinely global state of emergency in the sense that, that COVID, you know, affected all countries and, and all countries equally is significant. Obviously, states around the world um, have adopted a raft of emergency powers that would have been, um, again, unthink unthinkable just a couple of years ago, right? Um, and I think, you know, the, the, there's two things here. One, you know, we, again, we can point to countless examples where repressive governments have used these, have used the COVID crisis and the emergency powers as cover for political agendas, you know, um, rep repressive measures. Um, that, 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 that COVID has um, exacerbated. Um, never waste a crisis, you know, is, a, is, a, is I think a good analogy. I think even as, um, even as some of the restrictions pass and, you know, life begins to get um, a bit freer and more back to normal in, in many parts of the world, it's quite clear that, that this model of governance will, will stay for the next 
pandemic, right? It's, it's going to be all about um, preparedness. The, the questions I think we should be asking is, you know, will there be a genuine reckoning about what was right and proportionate? Um, and, and will some of the more repressive access, aspects be, be, be put away? I think two other things that have happened. One, you know, because of the everyone being confined to their homes, we have seen probably technological advance and developments that might have taken a decade um, have just come in you know, overnight, I think that's, um, it, it remains to be seen how transformative that is for our societies, but um, there can be little doubt that it's, it's handed um, yet more power and, and revenue to big tech and, and others. Um, and then just the last thing is really, I think the way health data has become, you know, a focal point for both technology and surveillance in a way that, that again, it, it never was. As someone who's just travelled to Germany, you know, the amount of, from the UK, the, the amount of people I have handed um, what, is, what is under European data protection law, very sensitive data to, um, without even sort of batting an eyelid, is, is quite frightening. And I think, um, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen how the, the, what the legacy of this will be. But again, the potential for misuse is, is clearly significant. Yeah, and here we have also um, um, a connection to to part four of our event series, where we talked, um, yeah, global global right to health, where um, we were reminded that health experts warned of a pandemic uh, even no, nearly 20 years ago, uh, after the first. Uh, SARS pan, uh, infections have been uh, detected in, in Asia. And so they were warning that a global pandemic is, is, is to be awaited. And the two tools they proposed was we have to uh, strengthen the health system in every region in the world. And what has happened, uh, money has been cut especially public health is nearly inaccessible for many large parts of, of the society, of societies in the global south. And also they have been proposing uh, public uh, vaccination agencies which research and develop uh, vaccines. And what happened was the other way around. Again, uh, the attempts to install something like that under the uh, roof of the WHO has been uh, blocked by especially European Union and, and the US. And then, you know, we end up in a very serious crisis. And the first measure they take is security measure. Um, and, uh, and as you said, some of these measures, some of this legislation have been, uh, will, will stay with us. How do you assess the situation in, in India? I mean, you have been living through numerous situations of emergency. And um, I mean, awkward enough, many of the laws which are used in, uh, in parts of India like Kashmir or Manipur are colonial laws. So the Brits established these security, so-called security laws and the post-colonial state used it. So you are used to oppression in particular parts of, uh, of, of India. So was, was the COVID situation something new? Were there new developments? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the world witnessed the failure of India during the COVID crisis, right? But so it did, and it also brought, I think, out, and of course it affected the communities which were already impacted by other measures of the state the most, uh, be it the migrant laborers, be it Adivasis, be it like in Kashmir with the internet shutdown in the middle of all of that, that was happening. The state made, made sure, as you said, like a use of the crisis, right? Like the Indian government did use that crisis to further its Islamophobic agenda, say, for example. So how do you cover up when you can't uh, do anything? The state could have done, but they chose not to do anything in the crisis that we were during COVID uh, and blame it in the, on the Muslim community. And what happened during COVID is that, of course, you can't go on the street. So it's all social media platforms that you're left with but for questioning the government, and they knew that those spaces have gone for us, like the street spaces have gone. And again, as I already mentioned, it's difficult to fight on those social media platforms. The state used the very social media platforms and WhatsApp and all of that to propagate these theories, conspiracy theories against Muslims, against different people that they are to blame 
for this entire crisis. At the same time, they also used it to further, for example, there were hundreds of arrests, literally right after March in the middle of the lockdown. Hundreds of arrests happened while the country was dealing with the worst crisis that at least I've seen nobody, I never imagined I would have seen anything like this in my lifetime. And there the state was more interested in arresting people, knowing very well that it will be even far more difficult to defend somebody during that time or for people to also defend themselves in times of such crisis. And it's just, we saw, as I said, like the worst of the state's function during the COVID crisis in India. Yeah, um, we just received the first question, so you can answer, uh, you can ask, maybe also answer um, the questions, um, and we try to, to, to answer it here. And so one of the questions is um, yeah, agreeing that we need to ask whose spaces are shrinking and why, what can we actually do about it? And that points also to the overarching theme of our, of our serious human rights and concrete utopias in times of crisis. Because um, to be honest, um, the global landscape looks partly dystopian and, you know, looking into some regions, it's even more egregious. Um, but we also have some positive um, developments to report. I, I mean, I mean the, the constitutional process in, in Chile, for example, in, in, a, in, a, in a time of a serious lockdown, Chilean population went on the streets, voted for a new constitution to overcome the Pinochet constitution. We have huge demonstration over the last two years of the uh, new women's movement in Latin America, uh, Fridays for Future, Black Lives Matter, even in the, in the time of, of the pandemic. And I think, uh, um, and that is the question basically to all, both of you, what can we do? How can we gain or regain uh, spaces? Uh, is it important to gain, let's say, territories? And um, how important is it to occupy public spaces, streets like Black Lives Matter, like Friday for Future, or and or in discursive uh, spaces. So what are, what are the counter strategies you would see for your country? I mean, you gave the good examples and I think farmers protest in India is a example of what collectivizing can done, right? So I think it's the collective struggles that can fight this crisis, but also more intersectional struggles, because I think it's even like intersectional globally, but like I'm, India is almost like a different states and so many issues in so many communities. And we also keep discussing that the struggles has to be intersectional within communities because everybody is facing. But yes, collective struggles would be, is the only way forward that I see currently. Um. Talk a little bit more about the farmers' protest. I mean, it was oppressed quite harshly. Yeah? It was. I mean, people have been arrested. They've been violent. Uh, they've faced violence and all, but they have stuck on uh, at a huge cost. More than 400 farmers have lost their lives at the border, but they're still there. It's been almost a year now. Uh, we're approaching almost a year now. And in spite of the COVID, everything, they've refused to leave to and the protest is against again this entire corporate power right like the farm laws that they're protesting is because with india it's not this hindu religious like fundamentalism that we are seeing but the extreme push for capitalism in the worst form that also is something that the farmers are resisting at this moment of privatizing of monopolizing everything that is there the markets and and they have resisted and i think it's one of the most beautiful after the protest uh, against the Citizenship Amendment Act that we saw, which also faced extremely violent uh, backlash from the state. I think farmers' protest has given a lot of hope and inspiration to a lot of us sitting in India. So I think that's very important because that's also all um, 
we are mainly overseeing how much protest is going on and how strong social movements are struggling claiming their rights. And um, so how do, how do we connect these struggles with our region here? And uh, that brings me to the next question, which I want to read. Living in a country with a fairly open space like Germany, how can we support organizations and activists who are operating within closed space or more or less closed spaces? Um. I think one of the things with India, which you already mentioned in the introduction, is that people don't even know. Like there is this, I think it's visibilizing the issue is the first thing. Because I think there are new, like country like India, it's really hard. Like I've been trying now for a, over a year to talk about it. And it's difficult to convince how bad the situation is. Like to say that it's a democracy is a lie at this point. And it's, it always sounds alarmist, but that's how one feels in the country and I think that's the first thing to do. I think the organizations outside of course needs to visibilize it, find ways of visibilizing the voices that are there but also questioning other governments right like who are okay to what okay with dealing with India like everybody is silent over what's what India is doing for whatever for their economic because India is a huge market but also for its geopolitical location with respect to China there are thousand reasons that I guess India is favored across the world at this point, but the cost of it is that everybody is ignoring what the what this government is doing. And I think that needs to happen, that the, all the governments outside needs to be pressurized and almost to the extent that they will be culpable. If you are doing arms trade with India, you are culpable in what's happening in India right now. And I think that's what is needed to do. Uh, Which is difficult because is, yeah. India yeah. is not easy to understand. Exactly. I mean, uh, it's such a huge country. It's such a diverse country with so many different regions. All of them are uh, struggling with different problems. Um, so, um, but you're right to point to a very, uh, yeah, a very traditional tool, and that is information and counter information. Um, you developed some other proposals, Ben how to counter this um, recent development in the last decade of shrinking spaces. You want to go beyond the superficial but necessary self-defense or defense of, of, of affected individuals and, and organizations. So there is no question that we have to fly out uh, those who are in danger to be tortured or or even in, in, uh, to, be, to be assassinated. Um, but that is, of course, not a sustainable strategy. So you have some ideas um, for more sustainable long-term strategies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say they're my ideas exactly, you know, and, and for, our, <laughs> for the research we did, you know, we interviewed um, about 150 people, you know, big picture thinkers, futurists, philanthropists, human rights organizations. Um, And I guess, you know, we talked about all the negative things about the pandemic, um, but it's also, you know, there's, there's quite possibly going to be some positive things that come out of this. You know, the country I live in, in the UK, you know, we've broadly up and, you know, we've spent the last um, 10 years living under crippling austerity politics, right, where the government was just constantly stripping away money from public services um, and, and people who needed it purely for, for a political and economic program. I think what COVID has done has shown that actually, you know, when the money is there and with the political will, if you need to bring huge public policies quickly into force, you know, we had the government paying um, half the workforce's salaries for more than a year. And I, I guess, the, you know, the reason why I'm emphasizing that is I think that, you know, I think I said this at the beginning, but, you know, a lot of people are disillusioned with democracy. They're disillusioned with the current global economy. They see rising inequality. They see um, stagnation in standards of living. Um, they see crises here, there and everywhere and governments not doing anything about it. And so I think what needs to happen, I think, you know, out of this needs to come a sort of a reimagination of society, economy, democracy, right? Um, and I think, you know, that that is already happening, right? They're all over the world, you know, people are organizing in different ways, you're getting new networks, constituencies of organizations trying to come up with um, solutions to these, these very real problems. 
Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the context of civic space, it's really about, you know, supporting these nascent um, movements. You know, you mentioned some of these yourself who are coming with very radical ideas, what seem like very radical ideas, not to us, but to, to the population at large. Um, and, you know, really putting a, a concerted challenge to the status quo. So in a, in a sort of in a civic space context, it's really about supporting and building civic power to bring around, I think, the kind of system change that a lot of progressive people now say is, is, is not only necessary but essential in a way that, that these conversations weren't happening, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago. So, yeah, and, but equally, you know, um, we are, let's not ignore um, the situation we're in. Let's not pretend there's equality of arms. You know, the, we've, we've talked about the techniques that these actors are using in terms of, 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 of civic space, but the, the techniques available um, to, to human rights defenders haven't advanced in that same way. Talking about the tools for human rights defenders, you founded a law firm in London. I'm directing a legal human rights organization. You're a lawyer. But none of us has so far mentioned legal tools, um, litigation, human rights uh, litigation uh, as part of the solution. We observed a lot of laws uh, which lead to a, a worsening of the situation. Um, how can law uh, help? How can law support the struggle of affected communities and targeted individuals? I think it's, I mean, it Like with respect to India again, like law, like the battles in court have been difficult because when the fascism hits, it also occupies the courts. And there has been, like, this is a struggle that we have all dealt with when it feels like the judiciary seemed compromised or not compromised, look, not courageous enough to stand against the state. Uh, what role does law play? And this is a question that's been uh, everybody like we, I think there have been differing emotions about it uh, I think it's just some a place where one has to still keep fighting and pushing so that you don't give up that space entirely like any other space yes. uh, it is still I think I see law as a tool for his for record making for putting up a struggle there uh, it's might be symbolic in nature but I think it's relevant for the communities that there's still some space you can go irrespective of the outcome or not, because, yeah, I think law is more like, just like, it's, it's a tool, but uh, I would say less and less useful in some times, but at the same time, I think it's important to not give up that space. Yeah, I think that's exactly what uh, we we at ECCHR try to, try to, try to reflect the ambivalences of law. Um, because we can also observe some positive developments uh, when it comes to accountability, first for state actors, where we actually, we, our small organization here in Berlin, but also the broader network, was able to bring some of those uh, who were extremely oppressive um, with social movements, with trade unions, like the dictatorships in Latin America, but recently also Syria, uh, were brought to court And even uh, something which was uh, yeah, not really imaginable 10 years ago, more and more corporations uh, are sued. And in Germany, we have, uh, we have new laws installed. We have European laws installed. So there are also some positive developments. Or what is your opinion on the, on, on the legal side? Because you are also suing companies and you're challenging security laws, so-called security laws. I think um, two things. Of course, there's a place for lit litigation, but that, that litigation is hard and painstaking, um, as, as, you, as you well know. I, I think when we talk about the law, I think one of the, one of the things that, that's equally interesting is the question of, you know, where does the law fail to address social harm and human rights abuses, right? Um, And, you know, if we can point to scenarios, and a lot of this relates to the challenges of updating the legal order to deal with the globalized world that we live in. But I think, you know, you can point to scenarios um, where we can see huge social harms to which the response has to be more law. Um, 
I'll give you two, maybe three examples. You know, um, again, it's relevant to the to the shrinking space debate because you know at, at the start of the um, the revolution in you know information communications technology, the onset of the internet, you know, it was going to be this thing that that brought um, that helped struggles for freedom, brought freedom um, to everybody. It clearly hasn't played out like that. We now, you know, you, you've talked about social media. You know, the the, the social harm that is being presided over by big tech and social media platforms, you know, political micro-targeting, social polarization, online harassment, you know, th these are things that, that will be addressed through novel legal frameworks. Um, and, and I would point to the draft EU Digital Services Act, where it is, it is precisely trying to place positive ob obligations on companies to do things about those harms and manage the risks of the tools that, that, un that, that support their business model. Second example, artificial intelligence. You know, again, we, we can see, um, and again, you know, relevant to the shrinking space debate, but, you know, the power of the potential for AI to turbocharge these kinds of things. Yeah, very interesting. You're pointing to the legislation process, also the standard making process, which is taking place right now. So we as litigators often come too late and we see now a struggle around uh, uh, yeah, regulations or non-regulations in the field of, of artificial intelligence where we should be involved as, as civil society. We are coming to a certain end, obviously no real end because this is an ongoing process, but um, as um, one person from the audience pointed to, and you can be sure I, I had the same idea, we have been talking a lot of about India, we could have talked about Russia, Egypt, and many other countries. Um, we, we talked little about the European Union countries, where we also can observe a number of, yeah, of serious uh, problems. We have been talking about the criminalization of the, of the solidarity with migrants, but there are also some uh, other uh, disturbing uh, developments. Uh, maybe you can point to one or two, Ben? You mentioned journalists already, sure. anti-corruption, um, journalists who worked on corruption, that's the assassination of the journalists in, in Malta and in, in Slovakia. Yeah. Um, look, I think, you know, there, there, are, um, there, are, there are clearly key differences, but, you know, one of the reasons we started critiquing the, the shrinking space concept was, you know, precisely because communities of democracies were sort of initially using it as, you know, look what's happening in Russia, look what's happening um, in, in other parts of the world. And, and we wanted to, um, to, to bring what is happening here in Europe into that conversation. I don't really have anything. I think we've, you know, we've, we've talked about all of the trends. I, th I think the, it's, it's really, you know, I, I guess I would say, you know, look, look at the way the management of protest, for example, has changed over the last 20 years. Look at the way everything from sort of school activists to public health activists to Black Lives Matter activists, you know, are now within, even if they're not having their homes raided or being put in jail, look how they've come under the purview of the security apparatus, right? And I think, you know, this is why I talk a little bit about this idea that, we, you know, we need to reimagine security as something other than national security, as something other than this, um, this huge transnational security and surveillance architecture, and go back to what, you know, security meant um, pre-9-11 and start thinking about security in terms of, you know, social, economic, and cultural rights, really, which is, is what most people are talking about when they want to live a a peaceful and secure existence. You know, they, they just want access to basic things. So I think, you know, I'm not sure I've really done justice to your question. I've, I've, I've avoided yeah, well, it. But you, you gave an answer and, 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 and you pointed to something uh, incredibly important that uh, we can see how the, the political right captured uh, the term security. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a very important thing. The last question uh, in this context goes to you. Um, what do you think is um, when people say shrinking spaces uh, are also existent in Europe? Um, I mean, I agree with Ben. It's a, it's a kind of, it's again, the saver syndrome of the Western states when they point to the Russias. They're not pointing to India, they're pointing to the Russias, to the Chinas and North Koreas of the world. But is it then right from progressive, from leftist um, uh, forces 
to say, no, we are facing similar developments in Europe or is it, uh, is it exaggerated? How would you assess this, this comparison? It's weird to put things in competition, right? Like I think things are going... Not in competition. Yeah. Comparison. <laughs> comparison. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's anywhere close to what we are seeing in some of the countries. Uh, what it does when we see the rise of right wing in other countries, I think it does embolden the Indian government, right? When you see a Trump or a Bolsonaro sitting and you say that you're friends with, those are your friends. And I think how that impacts how India also reacts and it thinks that it can also get away with that. And I don't I don't think it's, it's un, I mean, if the right wing is rising and if things are happening here in Europe, if the civic space is shrinking here, of course, that should be talked about. But I don't think there's a comparison to what one is seeing in countries like India or Myanmar or like anywhere in South, uh, which is not in the discourse at all. As you said, it's easy to talk about Russia or China. If there was any of these countries where 16 activists in a case, for example, would have been arrested, it would have been an issue on the front paper of the news uh, of the newspapers by now but there's that in a way not hypocrisy but there is that attitude difference that exists there but uh, what i would say this that the rise of right wing across and there's been a wave that happened at the same time when modi came to power is when also the trump bolsonaro and it all kind of emboldened like this attitude also kind of got emboldened back there yeah that's I think that's a wonderful conclusion, Isha, because um, yes, we have to stay informed about India and all the other countries and regions where spaces are shrinking. Uh, yes, we have to be in solidarity and help those uh, who are affected by oppression, maybe individuals, maybe organizations and, and communities. But um, we shouldn't forget to go beyond that and yeah, engage in political projects in our countries. Um, to avoid the Bolsonaros and Trumps um, and Johnsons and, uh, and, and uh, the, the revival of nationalist paradigms in order to make the whole world um, a little bit more uh, democratic and uh, solidarity. So um, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Isha. And uh, we continue. We continue to talk about shrinking spaces and, and how to counter um, these strategies, but we also continue to talk in within this series, Human Rights in Times of Crisis. Uh, in late October, we are going to discuss another very positive and uh, yeah, fresh development, the the women's movements and uh, and their role for the struggle for human rights and especially the movements in Latin America, but also its re repercussions in Europe. So. Please stay tuned. We will inform you about the exact date and yeah, hope to meet all of you who are invisible right now at some point, even in person. So thanks to the crew here and um, yeah, good evening, good afternoon. <laughs>